Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, BSH Home Appliances Corporation is looking for a senior user interface designer in Irvine, California. For remote work, the Wikimedia Foundation is looking for a lead UX designer for their product design and strategy group. And Design Action Collective is looking for a lead web designer in Oakland, California, or remotely. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll help spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And this week, I'm talking with Mark Smith, an industrial designer in Copenhagen, Denmark, and the head of design at Studio Mark Smith. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mark Smith, and I am an industrial designer based in Copenhagen, Denmark, with a studio business called Studio Mark Smith here in Copenhagen, Denmark. Nice. Now, I've been asking everyone on the show, you know, because of this pandemic, how they're holding up. But how are you doing? How is sort of the coronavirus and everything being handled in Denmark? Right now, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I think except for public transportation or like maybe going into a restaurant or something like that, you really wouldn't even see people with masks. Yeah, I mean, I mean we had the same tough time I think the world had, you know, especially uh, in the spring, early summer with confinement. But now things are, are pretty good. Okay. Yeah, over here, it's, it's the ghetto, man. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, it is not great. I mean, I don't know how much worse it's going to devolve by the time this interview comes out. But as of this interview, there's, you know, over 200,000 Americans dead, no sign of stimulus in the future. And it's still so dicey and tricky from even from city to city, let alone from state to state, just how masks and everything are being enforced. So it's wild. And of course, the economy is just like, we got to keep going. So people are out and about like, it's no big deal. It's a really tricky time over here. We feel it a bit less here in Copenhagen. I mean, it's a much smaller country. I think it's 5.8 million yeah. <laughs> in the entire country of Denmark. But yeah, I talked to my friends in the States, New York, Atlanta, where you are throughout the South, and it's a horrible, horrible time. And 2020 has definitely been like the worst year of, of, of my career. So, you know, so it's, it's tough. Well, speaking of career, let's talk about some highlights, at least then. Let's talk about Studio Mark Smith. When did you decide to strike out on your own? I decided it was sort of the last days when I was at Swarovski. I've been at Swarovski for eight years. 
And we knew, my wife and I, we knew we wanted to sort of make a move. And it had always been in the back of my mind to sort of test my theories, do some work, create some products and some experiences. And yeah, I think it was back in 2019, I made the decision to do it. It's been really an exciting journey. It's really fantastic. And I have a whole bunch of uh, collections that keep getting postponed because of Corona to, in terms of launch. They were supposed to launch in 2020, but it looks like we, uh, we launched them in uh, spring of 2021 for sure. Well, I want to dive more into your time at Swarovski later, but what's kind of a regular day like for you now then that you're out on your own? A regular day for me is, I would say, mainly working on my collection stuff, my collection work. Right now, I'm doing a collection of jewelry. So I have a collection called Hidden, and Hidden began as a collection for lighting and home products, like a a planter, various things you would have around the home, home decor type of products. And I was asked if I could bring that and translate that story into jewelry. And so uh, I've done that, and now we will be launching that in Dubai in 2021. Exciting. I mean, aside from kind of the exhibition part, are there any parts of your work that are different now because of the pandemic? Different? I would say it's funny because the hidden story, the story of hidden is basically beauty in a broken moment. So all of the pieces are like breaking open and inside there is uh, sort of in for the lighting and for the home decor products, the sort of this sort of geodes of crystal and for the jewelry. It's a fine jewelry collection, so it's breaking open and you're seeing some diamonds or you're seeing gold or you're seeing white gold. And it's this idea that when things break inside, that there's treasure if you have the eyes to see it. And I had for a while been really, I love the look of like the cliffs of Dover in in England or the Grand Canyon, just that ruggedness and that sort of broken edge for a long time, I've loved that, and I, I see it as something that is beautiful because it's imperfect. And I would say that working on my collection during the this pandemic has actually made it clear to me how important this story is and, and how important it is to sort of see that silver lining. Yeah, I would definitely say that the pandemic and everything sort of slowing down has helped me really center in, and, and that has added to the, I think, the quality of the collection. How do you approach a new project? Like, where does the idea, I guess, first come into play? And how do you put that into action? I would say my ideas often are a combination. My inspiration is always coming from nature. And and nature is a, if you see some of my work, it's, I have a, a lot of work that relates to water, a lot of installations, architectural installations that relate to water. I think that was a lot of what I, how I worked when I worked with Swarovski was like doing a lot of water things and using the crystal to reflect, refract and reflect light. It's coming from nature. But then on the other side, there's always looking for a job to be done. You know, what is something that people need that that it's not being addressed? So with these works that you're doing through the studio, these are just your personal creations. You're not like taking on client work or anything, are you? No, no. I'm also taking on client work. Oh, okay. I'm absolutely taking on client work, discussion with or waiting for word for a a client project there in the U.S., which is always cool. 
to do work for home. And and actually, the jewelry actually started out as a client request uh, and then built up so large that the client was like, well, would you be a business partner in this? Because it's it's far more massive than I initially thought it was going to be. Now, I want to, of course, go more into your design career. Like I mentioned, I want to talk about uh, Swarovski. But first, I want to go back to the very beginning. You know, you and I have sort of spoken before about where you grew up, but let's let's talk about it. Now, you're from here in the States, from the country. Absolutely. We, we, Absolutely. As, as we were talking before, from the country to Copenhagen, but... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was telling you that I think that's like, the, that's a perfect title for a book or something. <laughs> so where did you grow up? So I was born in Columbus, Georgia, which is right next to the Chattahoochee River. And part of my childhood was there in Atlanta, and the rest was there in Alabama. We moved back to Alabama, and I was living in Alabama when I graduated. I have two degrees from Auburn University, one a Bachelor in Environmental Design and a Master's of Industrial Design from their uh, College of Architecture programs. And yeah, just a good old Southern boy. Were you exposed to like design and art like this early on? Like, Do you remember that? Not per se. Not per se. My mom... I mean, both my parents were really fantastic, but my mom, she saw that I was always into drawing. And so they were always buying like, the, you know, those like how to draw books. I don't know if people still do that, you know, but it's like how to draw cartoons or how to draw horses or how to draw a face, you know, and she would get me those books. And I was just, I was always drawing. I was uh, the one that the, the teacher in the class asked to help with the posters and to decorate the bulletin board and all of that kind of stuff. But aside from that, I didn't have any sort of remotely formal exposure to it until I would say, I think it was like my junior year in high school. And then eventually from there, you ended up going first to, to Auburn University. Is that right? Like you said? Yes. So I went to Auburn University. When I first went to Auburn, I was a business major. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was a business major, majoring in marketing. And back then, you know, because I didn't sort of start any sort of formal work in art until my junior year in high school, it was always just sort of a side thing. And my parents were like, yeah, you know, that's a nice thing. And maybe you can paint on the weekends, but, you know, you got to go to school and do a real career and a real job. And, so back then, uh, I thought I was going to be a corporate attorney, <laughs> and I had like, my whole plan. I was going to major in business and minor in pre-law, and then go to law school at uh, Emory University, because uh, my mom, she got her master's at Emory there in, in Atlanta in nursing. That was the master plan. And then, I don't know, it was it's sort of funny, but it was a, kind of the genie in the bottle. It was like, it opened, I took a class my junior year, I threw myself into it, and I was winning all this sort of art competitions and, and everything. And, and so for my last two years of high school, and I was miserable. I mean, I was miserable. I tried so hard to just like buckle down and focus and, and everything. But before you know it, I got a part-time job designing t-shirts at a little t-shirt company called Master Graphics. And I started just doing all sorts of artwork, like getting paid for it all over campus. It was a pivotal moment. I was painting a wall mural in a restaurant, and I was 21 years old. So I should have been graduating that year. I know it was going. It should have been my senior year, and I had basically dropped out. And 
I got offered a job with Blue Cross Blue Shield in Birmingham, Alabama to work in their communications department. And all I needed to do was to finish my year. They didn't care what my grades were. They just loved the, they were having lunch in the restaurant where I was doing the, the, the wall mural. And they were just like, just finish and come. And I realized I don't want that. I just, I should have been ecstatic. I was a horrible business major. My GPA was not, <laughs> was, was, was in the toilet. I mean, I could graduate, but just, you know. And so to get an offer from Blue Cross Blue Shield in Birmingham and have that sort of guaranteed job, and they wanted me to intern that summer, should have been like just, you know, a gift from God. And, and in that moment, and I told the, the recruiter, the, the, the uh, director of, of human resources, I said, I would love to take the job, but I'm going to be going to New York. At that time, I had no idea if I could actually go to New York to art school. But in that moment, it, just, it was just clear that uh, I had to leave. And that's what I did. I went to Pratt Institute, winter semester, January uh, 1993, with only enough money to be there for one semester. Wow. So you really like took a leap of faith. Absolutely. Just pure, like, I just felt, I mean, it was just, I mean, I made this sort of tears in my eye and passion plea to my parents. And I just felt like if I didn't do that, I would just regret it for the rest of my life. Now, I imagine it had to be a pretty big shift going from Auburn, Alabama to New York City in the winter in 93. Like, what do you remember about that first year? <laughs> I remember being utterly unprepared <laughs> in every sense of the word. <laughs> I had never been far from home ever in my life. From my where my parents lived to Auburn had only it was like a 45 minute car drive. And I never forget my first night there, I realized that I didn't pack sheets. Oh no. I didn't, I didn't pack sheets for the bed. So I was on this bare mattress in the dormitory, curled up in this winter coat, you know, and that was all I had to sleep with. And I didn't even know where to buy sheets. I was just completely terrified of everything. I remember putting some backup money in my deodorant can because like the, it's like I did all this sort of crazy stuff. I got lost. I mean, every like country hick boy goes to New York City story you can imagine <laughs> happened to me. Wow. I realized that while I had this skill for drawing, that art is this really complex mental, ex I mean, you, you have to be extremely smart. And it's just like in engineering or any other sort of science, the visual science, form science, all these sorts of things, design, is and Pratt is like uh, one of the top schools in the world for that. So I was completely, I was in the bottom of my classes, just like in business school, but now I cared, you know? Now, <laughs> now I was like, this shouldn't be the case. What is happening? How is it that I'm failing this class and I'm giving my everything to it? But sort of took about a year, but went from the bottom to, to the top. Then I was in the tops of my classes. Nice. And I really felt that I was in the right place. So once you, you graduated from Pratt, and we've actually had a few Pratt alums uh, 
here on the show. Once you graduated from there, what were some of those kind of first design gigs? I'm assuming you probably stuck around in New York for a while once you got the hang of it, right? I did. I had a lot of different gigs. I worked at uh, Averex. It's a leather. They do leather jackets. I remember seeing that in like Vibe magazine. Those yeah, brands. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was a design, junior design assistant at Averex. I worked just doing textile design. Looking back on it, I did a lot of work within the sort of fashion sector there in New York around 47th Street. But yeah, and then I started being a teaching artist, which is basically partnering with uh, these sort of foundations where they, the idea is that you have creative problem solving and creative process. And so you, they would partner a creative with a traditional teacher in underprivileged classrooms uh, in schools. So like South Bronx, and I was working in uh, East Harlem and, and like that. And they would partner you with a teacher who might teach math or science. And you guys would get together and come up with basically a more creative way to teach math or a more creative way to teach science or history or what ha- whatever the, 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 t- the subject was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, that is, that's what I was going to So working those gigs, being a, a working teacher and everything, what changed? Because uh, from what I can tell from doing my research, eventually you did end up going back to Auburn, but then... What sort of prompted that move to go back? Were you trying to like prove something to yourself? I was just lost. Like I was just lost. You know, I went to Pratt, like I said, on a wing and a prayer. I guess I thought that doing something like sort of climbing that mountain, that on the other side, it was like, you know, the land of milk and honey. And I was lost. I mean, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. I was working going from sort of hand to mouth in regards to working and jobs and life. And I thought I was going to be this fine artist. And part of my apartment was like a studio. And, but at a certain point I wasn't even painting or, and I didn't like what I was painting. And, and my parents, and I have to say, I have the most incredible parents. You know, my dad came up and he had stayed with me for a little while. And he was just like, you know, come home. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing? You just, you're spinning your wheels and you're just hoping that one day something's going to be different or, you know, some break or something or whatever and come home. And I was like, well, what would I do? He's like, I don't know, teach or whatever, but it's better than what you're doing. So that's what I did. Felt, I got to say, I mean, it was one probably the lowest point in my life. Like, I felt like I had done the impossible, which was sort of breaking the gravity of the South and going to the big city and going to one of the best art schools in the world and graduating and doing well. And But when it returned to the South, it was like really as a sort of a failure and uh, with no plan, no... I had all of these skills. I, you know, I love comic books and I, I used to tell my, my parents, my brother, like, when I was there at Pratt, like, I'm getting all these superpowers. Like, I could do this now. I, I could never could have done that before. And now I can do this. And now I felt like, you know, like, I had all these superpowers. And it's like, what do you do? you remember, did you see Captain America? Yeah, I did. So all he wanted to do was fight in the war, right? Then he gets, like, the serum. And he's this, like, massive guy, right? <laughs> superpowers. And he's, like, dancing on a stage. Like, not doing the very thing that 
he went through all of that to do. <laughs> That's exactly where I was. So I went back and a friend of my parents had said, yeah, he should go over there and look at the industrial design program at Auburn. And my roommate, my former roommate at Pratt, my first roommate at Pratt, he had been an industrial design major. And I just had such admiration for that work and, and what the industrial designers did. And so I went to check it out. And thank goodness, I met the head of the program and he convinced me to go there. I would say the second best decision, one of my second best decisions of my life at that time to do that. The first number one best decision of, of my life at that time was to go back home because it was really what I needed and it grounded me and it put me in the right frame of mind to turn my life around. Yeah. There's something that, that you touched on here that I want to kind of draw out a little bit because I feel I personally relate to it, which is being from the South, from a small town, particularly in Alabama, going off elsewhere to a, a bigger city to try to make a name for yourself. And then this sort of silent, I guess, fear that motivates you to do well so you don't have to go back. Like, the way you said it, you sort of characterized going back home, or you saw it, I guess, as a failure, but it ended up being this reset. And I mean, I'm thinking personally for myself, I, I'm guessing it's probably this way for other people that are from like small towns. You want to try to grow out of your situation. And sometimes going back to that can feel like you're sort of like regressing or you're like taking Absolutely. a step back. Absolutely. I mean, I know people who are still in New York. And I think New York City, I think most big cities are full of people who, you know, the quality of their life, the quality of their careers, the quality of, of what they achieve is not really greater because they're in that city. The city just becomes a great place to hide. Hmm. It's like, yeah, you know, the so-and-so, yeah, there's in New York. I don't know. They're doing something, you know, they're, you know. <laughs> and, and you know what I mean? And I knew people like that who were just there. Yeah. You know, like I said, I, I think I'm very thankful to my family. They really framed it like, we need you here. We want you here. And we think it's also good for you, too. It takes courage to leave. And for sure, it takes <laughs> equal to greater courage to come back, especially when you haven't achieved what you thought you were going to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I had when I got back was my that piece of paper from Pratt, which not to diminish it, not to say that that was a small thing, but the, the best thing that that paper did was get me into the industrial design program at, at Auburn. Yeah. So. And so you're back home, you're at Auburn, you co-founded something at Auburn called Design Seed, I believe? Yes, yes, yes. What was Design so, Seed? So the concept of Design Seed is that you have this huge, like, band that goes through the center of the state of Alabama through Selma. Selma is at the heart of it, called the Black Belt. And the Black Belt is basically where all this sort of rich black soil geologically swept down from the Mississippi River through the center, this big sort of band through the center of the state. And because of the rich black soil there, it was the, the most intense center of agribusiness, slavery, plantation in Alabama, uh, arguably in the entire South. So you had just 
this concentrated, concentrated amount of slaves in this region called the Black Belt. And when slavery ended, the Blacks of that region were just left to poverty. And it hasn't changed at all. (laughs) And so the idea of Design Seed was that the problem with that region is that you really can't make money with agribusiness, right? With the farming. You can't make enough money to live. And the real money is in manufacturing, in industrialized employment and in industrialized products. And so the idea was to design products that could be manufactured profitably in this region and to seed that region with these micro manufacturing businesses that could start and create jobs. And then the idea is that design seed would use all of the leverage, all of the, the intellectual leverage of Auburn University, University of Alabama, funding from both state and federal levels, and, and all of this sort of concerted effort to create these micromanufacturing businesses that would then grow up in that area and employ more people, employ more people, and employ more people. So that was the concept of Design Seed. I proposed it, I think, literally within the first month of my graduate school. And within the first month, it got funded from the College of Architecture. By the end of that semester, it was funded by the university. And by the time I graduated, it was like a lightning rod for all sorts of federal funding for the university. So I actually graduated, got a job designing barbecue grills and turkey fryers in Columbus, Georgia, at a place called Masterbuilt Manufacturing. So uh, I had gotten that job and I was doing that work. And then I got a call back from my old thesis advisor and who was also my partner, Tsai Lu Lu, and a Taiwanese guy. He's now the head of design at uh, North Carolina State University. And Tsai was like, hey, can you come back? And I was like, what do you mean to visit? He was like, no, like we need you to come back because we got all this funding after you left and we need you to come back to, to run this. And so I did that. And everything was going phenomenal, incredible. In 2010, we won. We were like the youngest project to win the Southern Growth Policies Innovation Award out of Kentucky. And everything was going great. And then the um, financial crisis hit there, 2009, 2010. Uh, All the funding just dried up. We never got a chance to launch even a single business. Oh. What ended up prompting the move to Europe? So I'm imagine that I'm fighting the good fight. I'm driving up to Washington, D.C. and presenting to congressmen and all of this sort of stuff to keep my project alive. And I get a phone call by, from a recruiter from a design that, that I had done that they saw, and they wanted me to interview for Swarovski and the Crystal Company. And the first time I said no, actually. And I told them all the reasons why I didn't want to do it. I said, yeah, you know, the money's not enough and you're not thinking about it correctly like this. And this, I just, it was a really interesting thing because it's never happened to me before or since. I said all the reasons why they were thinking about the job incorrectly. I did all the things you're really not supposed to do when you're interested in a job because I wasn't interested in the job. (laughs) 
And uh, they call me two months later and said, we fixed everything. Would you still be willing to interview for the job? And so I did. And I got the job. And that's how I began with Swarovski, which is headquartered in Austria and Switzerland. There's two headquarters, one in, in Vatens, Austria, and the other one's in Menendorf, Switzerland. And I started in their U.S. office in upstate New York in a small town called Plattsburgh. It's like an hour south of Montreal. And I was there for three and a half years and then moved to Europe. So it sounds like, you know, you were, like you said, fighting the good fight here, doing what you could. You came back, you got the reset that you needed. And then this opportunity kind of came out of nowhere, it sounds like. Honestly, it was, I think it's really interesting. I wish it could be one of those sort of stories where I would say, you know, it was my big break and I knew it was my big break, (laughs) but I did. I absolutely did not. Taking the job with Swarovski was, that was my big break. It was like, it was like a rocket ship. I mean, just from day one, it was like just absolutely transformative in the scope of the work, showing what I could do, learning what I could do. I never forget it was literally within the first week on the job. And I'd gone in at six in the morning because it was so overwhelming that I I thought, well, I just need to kind of like catch up a little bit. And as soon as everyone gets into the office, like I don't have a chance to breathe. The general manager of the company was there by the coffee machine at six in the morning. And he was like, Mark, wow, so great that you're in early. That's perfect. Come on to my office. And I was like, oh, come on. Like I come in at six. I need to come in at five in the morning just so that I can get some peace. And I go in and and all the heads of the departments are there. And he said, yeah, we were just sitting here thinking that Mark should be on this call, but you just started. So we just didn't think to, we had just hadn't thought to invite you, but it's perfect that you're here. So we're all here because this is a phone call with China, Beijing, and we're discussing designing the largest crystal dragon in the world. And you're going to design that. So here we go. And I was like, I'm sitting there like in shock, designing the largest crystal dragon in the world for China, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was like that. I mean, just really incredible, incredible projects, incredible opportunities and incredible growth. Now, I know that, you know, you're not at Swarovski anymore, but I'm curious about something particular, I guess, you know, as we're here in this pandemic, because so much of consumer spending has changed right now. Like, I don't know if people are really spending money, certainly not on travel and entertainment like they used to. And I would imagine that probably is the same way for luxury items, too. How do you see a brand like Swarovski? Or I would even say kind of a brand of what you're doing because you're making custom jewelry. How do you sort of adapt to these times when there's now probably a new definition around luxury items? I think first, the jury is still a bit out in regards to what's going to happen with the luxury industry as sort of we going forward. So when I took the job at Swarovski, you have to think that I got hired November 2010. So it was still very much the recession at that time. The housing bubble had burst. And, and if you had asked me as just sort of a regular person, would it be the time to sort of build up a department dealing with luxury installations and luxury products, I would have said no. 
But I would have been wrong. I mean, the luxury industry was booming during that period of time. So it's going to be interesting. I I don't know. I mean, this is a a different circumstance. And there's always those who have means and, and want to buy it. Now, with the work that you're doing, and even the work that you did with Swarovski, you're, you know, you're designing for an international audience. What are some of the challenges with that? There's a lot of challenges designing for international audience, a lot. And I think it took me a long time of development and a long time of training to be able to to design for a truly international audience. And I do say that in a way where I mean truly international audience. A lot of that has to do, and I think the great thing is that I think once you sort of get to understanding the, the, the difference of the process, it's a lot about understanding what we have in common. And we have a lot. It's been said, and I think it always bears repeating, there's only one race, and that's the human race, period. You have different body types, different colors, different hair textures, different features, all of that. But at the end of the day, there's only one race, and that's the human race. And so designing internationally has some to do with ergonomics uh, in terms of different body types and different features, physical features. But I think largely it has to do with thinking more culturally in a more cultural, global mindset. So, for instance, when I when I draw my inspiration from nature, there's not a culture on this planet that does not respond to a beautiful sunset. There's not a culture on this planet that doesn't stare into a fire and tell stories. There's not a culture on this planet that doesn't love water. Kids don't want to, you know, want to swim in it and play in it and all of that. So I think, you know, when you think, you know, sort of pull back, you know, if we could fly into space and pull back and you see this wonderful blue marble that we all share, designing internationally is not as problematic as you might think. I would say there's more like not overthinking it. And yeah, I mean, they're just really seeing everybody as human. I really can't just, I can't emphasize that enough. Just seeing everyone, I see it in myself. Every time I travel to a new place, you know, like I, you know, you go like uh, to Asia and they love watermelon and there's no stereotype, you know, there's no stereotype like, you know, how it is in the U.S. and the South, you know, all black people love, truth is everybody loves watermelon. You know, yeah. and, fried chicken um, too. Exactly, and fried chicken too. And so much of this stuff is constructs. But yeah, if you just think about just people who are like you culturally, physically, then yes, then then designing internationally might be challenging. Mm-hmm. So now you're in Denmark. You have your family there. Your studio is there. In general, like, what's life like for you there? Do you think? there would be something that would prompt you to move back to the States one day? Just curious. I don't know. (laughs) I really (laughs) like it here. I'll be honest with you. I really like, it wasn't, you know, like, it wasn't the plan. I pride myself in, I'm a man of faith, and I I really try to more listen to what God is telling me and where God wants me to go than my own plan. Because I feel like when I've made plans, they really didn't work out. But I really like living in Europe. If you talk to me, like if you went back 15, 20 year mark, whatever, and you ask them that, 
he would say never in a million years. But yeah, I love it. So and in Copenhagen, the people are wonderful. I mean, absolutely. This is some of the sweetest people. I've lost my phone on a city bus three times. Three times I've lost my sorry. Once I lost it, twice I've lost it on a bus. Once I lost it on the street, I was biking and it just fell out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. And each time someone returned it to me. Wow. It's a wonderful city and we just bought a house. So I, I, I think, yeah, I think we're going to stay here for a little while. Nice. I mean, and I would imagine too, even just after looking at what's happened this year, the United States probably doesn't look like a desirable destination for from overseas, I would I would imagine because for us here, man, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I tell you, I tell you something. I was having a coffee with a gentleman of color. He's Danish, and uh, we were talking about that, and he was saying the same thing. What I love about living in Europe, I love a lot of things in terms of quality of life and quality of food and quality. I like that you don't have to fight so hard for all of that in U.S. If you want the best for your family, you want good education, you want to live in a nice place, you want, you know, you know, fresh vegetables and and all of this sort of things and good health care and everything. Absolutely, you can get it. But for I'd say the majority of Americans, you gotta fight for that. You gotta fight in your education, you gotta fight in your job, you gotta fight and work hard, be the one who who stays late and all of that kind of stuff to provide that for your family. And one of the things that I've definitely found that I enjoy is that they don't roll like that here. They don't roll like that. You know, they, 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 they don't. Denmark is a proud welfare state. They call themselves that. It blew my mind. I was like, like, that's not a, you're not insulting yourself. Like, you know, in the U S that's an insult. And for them, they are fiercely proud about that. America is a messy country, but we've always been a messy country. What does success look like for you now? And just so you know, it's been intermittently dropping out like every three or four minutes. So I'm going to be curious to see how the final product sounds. I'm making a lot of notes and I'm glad that you keep talking because what my hope is that Skype records that even though I'm not hearing it, but I'll have to go back and listen once we've we've wrapped it everything. So I'll just I'll ask that again. We're kind of right near the end, just so you know. So with everything that you've accomplished and, you know, with where you're at in your life right now, what does success look like for you? Success would look like my studio business doing well. I've been blessed to do a lot of incredible work when I was at Swarovski and in uh, doing Design Seed and other things. And I would really love to have that sort of success with my, my own collections and with the work that I do for my clients. So that's definitely what success would look like for me to really build a strong studio business and have that uh, a studio business of someone of color and to share what I've learned and to employ a diverse team. That would be amazing, especially to employ a diverse team. One question that I'm asking every guest this year, and I'll ask you this the same question, is how are you using your skills to help create a more equitable future? Honestly, I think just <laughs> trying to do what I'm doing with my studio. There's so many studios, so many creatives out there, creative studios out there that I admire. 
but very, 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 very few from people of color and Black people. And for, I think, a lot of different reasons. We often don't get a lot of exposure. We don't get a lot of credit for the work that we've done. I think there's often a lot of cultural bias that people are not aware of, maybe even in themselves, where they think, well, unless I'm doing tennis shoes or something, let's say, call it stereotypical, fits within the Black or African-American culture or something like that, then I don't need that voice. And so I think having a successful studio and using that success to be able to employ a diverse team and having that be successful would definitely build, I mean, add a lot of equality and be a a great symbol, so to speak, of, of a more equitable future where it's possible to be a designer first, not a black designer, but to be a designer and to be valued based off of the body of your work and what that brings and your methodology and, and how you think. And I think that that day has not come yet. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? Hopefully doing my studio business and, and working with coming into work and greeting my team and and, and everything like that would be fantastic. Aside from that, I, I try not to make uh, too many plans. <laughs> like I said before, I try to listen and I try to listen to, to where life is taking me and to make the most of the opportunities that I'm given and to, and to honor that and to, to work hard. Yeah. So just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? The best place is definitely... My website, www.studiomarksmith, all sort of one word, no gaps, studiomarksmith, M-A-R-K-S-M-I-T-H.com. I would say that's the best place. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there and a few other platforms like that. But I would definitely say they can come to my website and just hit contact and just send a hello or something. All right. Sounds good. Well, Mark Smith, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, not just because of your story. And for the listeners, we have been plagued with technical difficulties. This is like the third time that we've tried to record this interview. <laughs> and I'm so yeah. glad that it is it has pretty much gone off, mostly without a hitch. But no, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to kind of share your journey from small town in Georgia slash Alabama to working in Europe, and really kind of all the steps along the way. I think it's important to show that there is no one set discrete path to success in this industry, that you can sort of bounce around and figure things out and kind of come up with your own plan, which is what you've been able to do and what you're continuing to do through your studio. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. It was really a pleasure. I'm really glad we were able to do this. And and I really appreciate the opportunity to tell my story. This is the first time I've ever done something like this. And so it's really, it's really been uh, fantastic. Big, big thanks to Mark Smith. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Mark and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.